Professor Baker, we now come to the point where we can discuss your scholarly works and the research that you've undertaken over the last half century to produce them. And to say that you've been very productive and that your output has been impressive would be to understate your contribution to scholarly legal history. Your CV lists 38 books, 123 chapters in books, 183 articles and notes, 12 pamphlets, 35 book reviews and 97 invited lectures. Also, remembering that you've always had a full academic life of lecturing, administration and activity in learned societies puts these achievements even more clearly into perspective. It would have been impossible for me to have read more than a small percentage of this material and consequently I hope you'll forgive me for having been very selective in the books and the papers that I've looked at in detail. I suggest that we go through your works in the following categories. One, general considerations. Two, comments on specific topics. And three, a few major texts. Professor Baker, for many readers and listeners, I suspect that putting the wide span of your intellectual activities into context will be of great interest. Could we start with some general discussion of your early and continuing goals, as well as research strategies and methodologies? At what point in your career did you decide that legal history was your main area of interest? I don't remember ever making a conscious decision. If you look, some of my earliest papers were on the law of contract, actually, because I thought I'd been appointed a lecturer in law, and I should do some of that as well. But I was always interested in legal history from the start. I don't think I ever felt I understood anything legal unless I knew where it had come from and why. And no doubt agreeing to write a textbook on legal history was some sort of decision, so quite early on. I wondered how your interests evolved over the years. Was it opportunistic as you made various discoveries? Well, to some extent, although discoveries tend to be related to what you go out looking for. And I've recently had to go over a lot of the same manuscripts that I looked at 30 years ago looking for other things and I didn't note them at the time because I wasn't working on those subjects then. So occasionally you make a discovery that's obviously going to be significant and takes you away from what you were thinking of, but mostly it's just a slog through sources. You've been extremely prolific and I wondered what your technique was to pursuing a topic. Did you have periods of intense reading... Uh, and then perhaps you, during a sabbatical, or were you able to do your writing interspersed with a lecture programme? Well, there are two stages. Obviously, there's the collection of material, and then when you think you've got enough, there's trying to write it up and working out if you've got something worth saying. The collecting material had to be spread out over odd moments and intervals, precious visits to the public record office or the British Museum, or even the UL, sometimes difficult to get to in term time, uh, and one just did that whenever one could. For writing up, it is a good idea to have a bit of extended peace and quiet if one can get it, so well, vacations provided that. I didn't ever have that many sabbaticals, and they're not that conducive to the research stage because one is always tempted to go far away, and one is away from the sources, though they are very good for writing up because it's an advantage to be away from the sources and you don't go away chasing footnotes when you should be concentrating on the main writing. 
And the All Souls Fellowship was particularly helpful in that respect. I got a lot done there. Many or most of your works describe how you needed access to particular materials, for example, plea rolls, yearbooks, and a range of manuscripts. I wondered how quickly you managed to master the Latin and the law of French to translate such texts. It was a, I started with the printed yearbooks in the Inner Temple Library, as I mentioned previously. And it's as much a matter of understanding the abbreviations as the language. And eventually you realise it's all standardised and you come to know what the forms are. And my biggest learning period, I suppose, was editing Spellman when I had to grapple with the law French and with the Latin of the plea rolls. And if you're editing something, you can't duck issues. You've got to translate every word, so you just have to keep at it until you've made sense of it. Eventually I ended up writing a little glossary of law French because no one had done one before. It even went into a second edition. It doesn't have a vast readership. A feature of your works is your constant use of original research, even in your introductory book, and many start with the discovery of a manuscript. This must have given you a strong intellectual base upon which to set your articles and your books. You are not just reinterpreting previous cases or other scholars' theories, but presenting completely fact-based observations upon which to base new ideas. And this place, a lot, much of your work beyond dispute. It seems to me a very scientific approach, and I wondered whether this was a conscious strategy that you adopted throughout your career. I'm not sure I've ever had any conscious strategies. I've just got on and done it. Uh, did what was seemed obviously necessary to gather the evidence. I've always tried to stick to the evidence. I get accused of sticking too close to it and being an internalist and not taking enough account of what's going on outside the sources. But uh, yes, it has been, my work has been very largely based on manuscripts, what I find in them. Well, having settled on legal history as your chosen subject, can we briefly look at the early years of your research? I wondered whether you could tell us something about your first book, An Introduction to English Legal History, which appeared in 1971, and presumably you spent several years at UCL working on it, on this, on the sources for this book. Do your earliest papers give clues as to your thinking and your approach as they were written while the book preparation was ongoing? The earliest paper that I found was published in 1968, when you were about 23 years old, a sixth copy of Blackstone's lectures published in the Law Quarterly Review. No, that was just a, an announcement of a find in the Law Library. The, the Law Library at UCL had just moved from the rather stately Donaldson Library into this warehouse-like building, and I think they probably decanted the contents of the store there as well. And this, Blackstone manuscript turned up. It, it hadn't been in the old library. And I just took it to the issue desk and they stamped out the return date inside it. <laughs> I took it straight to Professor Keaton, the head of the department, and he said, you should put a note in the Law Quarterly Review. So that's what I did. But it wasn't a piece of research at all. But it was the start of a long and enthralling journey that you began. It, well, it showed an interest in manuscripts, I suppose. There were other papers, 12 papers, published during the gestation period of your book, your introduction to English legal history, and I wondered if they represented parallel projects or were they spin-offs from your research for the book? 
For example, councillors and barristers, um, this was a paper on an aspect of the legal profession, and there's also a section in your book on barristers. It's quite a short section, I think, about two pages. The truth is I didn't do much research for the book, if, if any, because my object wasn't to set out the results of research, but to try to summarise very briefly what was known for the benefit of students. So the research was going on in parallel, and of course if I discovered something that seemed to be necessary in a brief outline, I put it in, but it wasn't designed to alter what I was saying. Later on, in subsequent editions, of course, uh, one finds a bit more uh, results of research that I've done, but that's inevitable. Incidentally, in your Irish jurist paper, you you made a youthful conclusion, you were 25 years old at the time, that the 16th century battle between Cook and Ellesmere was more about personalities than equity in law, and I wondered whether this conclusion has stood the test of time. I think so, and I don't suppose anybody now believes that that dispute was about the need for equity, which it wasn't, and it was certainly a, a clash of personalities. It was also, I, I think, a, a constitutional crisis of a kind, and I've been exploring that in my latest book on Magna Carta. I think that was actually one of the best articles I ever wrote, and having revisited it 30 or 40 years later, I, I wasn't able to add very much to it. Uh, it was based in, and what sparked it off was the discovery of Timothy Turner's notebook in the British Museum, which had some very significant comments on what was going on in 1616. Well, that was a happy discovery. And I haven't found anything more telling since then on that particular subject. Just as an aside, your Funeral Monuments in the Air, published in The Irish Jurist in 1970, seems quite an esoteric topic. And I wondered what drew you to this in this early period of your research. Well, that was a, another tangential piece of work. Obviously, it related to an early interest in monuments, but it wasn't an antiquarian piece. I, I was interested in the doctrine which Cook put forward, that the ownership of a funeral monument belongs to the person who put it up during their lifetime, and then it goes to the heirs of the person commemorated. And that seemed to me one of the most extraordinary doctrines in the common law, because it's, it's the only example of a remainder in real property by operation of law rather than by grant. And I wanted to know whether Cook had just made it up. That's what that was about. But it stood alone as a subject. It doesn't really relate to anything else. Professor Baker, that brings us to the next section, which is particular topics on which you've published widely. In addition to the 38 books listed in your extended CV, can we consider some of the more important of these topics which you covered in your 138 articles and 123 book chapters? I estimated that 9% of your articles and 51% of your book chapters were on the papers and the lives of legal personalities. In your previous interviews, you talked about your prosopography project. Presumably your research output in this category is what underpinned this prosopography project. No, not really. Uh, the, the biographical essays, which are not really prosopography, but individual biographies, were mostly from a later period. And what sparked off the men of court, that is the prosopography, was a chance discovery in the plea rolls in 1978. 
And I found that almost every term in the 1450s and 60s, there would be an action of debt or consolidated actions of debt against long lists of people described as being of London gentlemen or of Hoban gentlemen. And occasionally the cat was let out of the bag by naming the plaintiff as the principal of Clement's Inn or something. And I realised these were lists of members being sued for their dues. And since we didn't have any other nominal lists from this period except for Lincoln's Inn, I thought, well, at last we have a chance of working out at least a cross-section who belonged to these univers- this university. And so I started putting them on cards and on slips cut from old examination papers until I had an enormous number of them and, and tried to work out who they were if I could. And needless to say, since these actions went on well into the 16th century and I traced them back to 1440, it became quite a large exercise, a prosopography rather than just a list of individuals. Do, do you have a list that you are researching? Well, not for that purpose, no, because I was trying to find out uh, well, who all, they all were. They all were. And I would feed in the names of all the attorneys whose names appear in the plea rolls and uh, any other lawyer I knew about. So that was an attempt to find out all, what I could about everybody in the legal world at that time. Whereas the uh, biographies you mentioned were all a result of being asked to contribute to various publications. Being uh, Professor Simpson's Biographical Dictionary of the Common Law and the Guide to American Law. Yes, although in fact a bigger commitment was the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, uh, which I was put in charge of the 16th century lawyers. And since I couldn't get many other people to help, I ended up doing most of them myself. And I think in the end I did 120 entries for that, ranging from the 14th century to the 20th. Last one was my predecessor, Hazeltine. Some of them were just revisions of the earlier entries, but they were mostly rewritten. I should add that, that although numerically these biographies seem to represent a large part of my work, they're far from being at the heart of what I do as a legal historian. A few of the longer ones made significant historical points, but they're mostly rather basic factual contributions to works of reference. Famous English canon lawyers was the subject of ten papers from 1988 to 1997, published in the Ecclesiastical Law Journal, and I wondered what the particular interest was here. Was this a specific project related to church matters? And I wondered who these ten personalities were. No, again, I was pressed into it. <laughs> it wasn't my decision. It was Graham Routledge, who had been a practising barrister, I think, in Liverpool, uh, who took orders and then became both chaplain and a law don at Corpus. And he founded the Ecclesiastical Law Society and asked me to write something for its new journal on a famous canon lawyer. And then he said, can we have another one? And so it went on until there were about a dozen. And then they said, can we make this into a book? And so I found myself writing a little book which I'd never planned to write on a subject which wasn't really my true area of expertise. Although the canon lawyers have mostly been very kind about it, perhaps partly because I was looking at them from a common lawyer's viewpoint. Another of your topics which I identified was an interest in church topics, and I wondered whether this interest in the ecclesiastical personalities and artefacts 
stemmed from your boyhood fascination with exploring the Essex churches? No, I don't think it's got anything to do with churches or the small c. I, I just think a legal historian must know a bit about ecclesiastical law and the church because of its former importance. I don't claim to know much about canon law. My knowledge is very superficial. Though I did give a few lectures on its history at the behest of Chancellor Garth Moore when we had a tripos half paper on canon law. But I've never studied it in depth and it would take many years to acquire expertise in it. So your interest in church topics is seen in several publications that were about brasses and monuments in churchyards, and I wondered why it was that you chose these. Well, that was a, a different kind of interest, of course. It's nothing to do with canon law, and you might well call that an antiquarian interest. It's not, not really of intellectual importance. I, I just as a sideline tried to find and, and photograph monuments of judges and lawyers wherever I could find them. And it related to a, another long-term project, but one which probably never will see the light of day, to produce a catalogue of English judicial portraits. I, I collected several thousand engravings in my younger days when they could be had for a few pence each, and I had a very large collection of photographic images as well. These will all end up in the Centre for Legal History in due course, I hope. Again, it's not important, but I was just curious to know what my characters looked like. I, I see them and I'm writing about them. Uh, at home in the dining room I've got original paintings of Cook and Ellesmere and Bacon and Wormsley who all appeared in my early articles. Brings them to life a bit. So, Professor Baker, could you sum up essentially what the relationship was between the possible role of the canon law and the development of the common law? Well, I'm not persuaded there was much influence at all. I mean, others may take a different view. It provided a model of a system of justice and of legal procedure, and some of that procedure was adopted by the Court of Chancery. But I don't really think many substantive principles can be traced to the canon law, not even equity, which was largely created by common lawyers, even though the chancellors were canonists in the 15th century. And and the reason is because most of the common law was about real property and commercial law, and those weren't the proper concerns of church lawyers. They won't find anything in the corpus juris canonici about feudal tenure, as far as I know. I suppose my principal contribution to that subject was in showing the influence of the Cambridge lawyers in the 14th century on the development of law reporting. I didn't discover the reports myself, but I joined up various bits of information which hadn't been joined up before, certainly hadn't been related specifically to Cambridge. And I did that when a, a congress of canon lawyers came to Cambridge and I thought they ought to be given a bit of local information and I discovered it was actually rather more interesting than I thought it was when I started. I noticed that you were criticised by Dr Lovett in his 1987 CLJ review Ray, the Legal Profession and the Common Law, 1986, for your emphasis on the ends being secular, while the universities were organs of the church and regulated by it. Gateways to the church, you call them, and I wondered whether you thought his criticism was justified. Up to a point, probably. I mean, his larger criticism was that I made too much of a contrast between the systems of learning, and I accepted that in my later writing anyway. 
and I accept that probably more students went to university before they moved on to the Inns of Chancery at the age of 18, and we shall ever know because the universities just didn't keep records of undergraduates. We know less about the universities than we do about the Inns of Court in the 15th century at undergraduate level. Um, but I stand by my main point, point that the universities saw themselves as being mainly concerned with the education of the clergy, just as the inns saw themselves as being mainly concerned with the education of lawyers, even though both universities, all three universities I should say, uh, attracted lots of students who weren't going into the professions. That, that was a sideline. Professor Baker, that brings us to the next topic, which is migration of manuscripts, manuscripts in general. And 41% of your articles fall into this category. And I wondered to what this cryptic title refers. Well, I wouldn't call them articles at all, and that shows the dangers of statistics, because it <laughs> makes it look, look as though I've written more than I have. It was just an attempt to log items which were coming onto the market, mostly at auction, some of which were important and some were simply ephemeral. I'm not sure how many people read it. I've kept it up now for a good many years, ever since the Journal of Legal History began, which I think was in 1980. And I hope they might have some educational value or spark off interest in, in different subjects. A high proportion of the items listed were acquired by either Anthony Taussig or me. And actually, I would have a rather more interesting collection if Anthony hadn't outbid me on most of the interesting ones. So you stated in the preface to one of the books, which I hope we can talk about later, your collected reprints for 2013, that every legal historian should edit manuscripts. They've been an integral part of your research regime. Perhaps this was another schoolboy hobby that served you well. And you said that you became familiar with the script at this early stage, but I wondered how long it took you to master the law French and the legal Latin. Well, I, I touched on that already. Um, the first stage, obviously, is just working out what the abbreviations mean and, and the vocabulary. But paleography and translating aren't just a matter of learning the shapes of letters and having the vocabulary. That's a necessary start. But you can't make sense of hieroglyphic abbreviated text unless you develop a sense of what the text really means. And that obviously improves over time as you get more familiar with legal procedures and concepts. Because editing legal text means you've got to understand the procedures that they're talking about and the lines of argument. And it's quite hard. And I expect that explains why not many people care to take it up. Three percent of your articles and about 26% of your books seem to have been based on specific manuscripts or documents that you've unearthed, which makes me think that perhaps you are constantly on the lookout for such items. Do you come across many in bookshops or are the bulk of them in recognised collections? I don't think I ever found one of significance in a bookshop, though in the old days I used to visit bookshops when you could still buy 17th century law books, many of which were on my shelves now. Those days are long gone, of course. The only important one that came out at auction in my time was the Port Notebook, which I mentioned earlier. Though I have just edited some statutes of Clifford's Inn, manuscript statutes, which I bought via the internet for £4.99 a few years ago. 
Um, everything else is in libraries, some of them private, but most of what we know about has trickled in, into institutional libraries over time, a great many through the sales of the great Phillips Library. But, but most legal history isn't about single discoveries because insofar as it's based on case law, case law is cumulative and you just have to keep looking at as many manuscript law reports as you can get to. And I tried to facilitate that with my microfiche project uh, years ago, but that technology now seems a little cumbersome and it will become a lot easier if more legal manuscripts could be digitised. So far that's only happened seriously with the plea rolls, a project started by Professor Robert Palmer, with transformational consequences, absolutely amazing. Instead of travelling with a notebook to Kew, which takes two hours there and two hours back from here, anyone can now read the plea rolls at home online, even if they're in Arizona. Wonderful Great. advance. And if that could be done with law reports, then it, it really would be tremendous. That brings us to the very important topic, the Inns of Court, what you frequently refer to as the third university, and which have figured prominently in your career and your writings. You've been deeply interested in their history and the role that they've played in shaping our law. Five books, nine articles and 31 chapters deal with this. In your 1971 book, An Introduction, you have a section on the Inns, page 69 to 77, written fairly early in your research career, and I wondered how much of this was original research while you were at UCL, or was it mostly culled from published sources? I think only pages 69 and 70 were on the Inns, so it wasn't a very long section, actually, and I hadn't then done much original research. It was mostly done later. Professor Baker, has there ever been a serious attempt to incorporate the Inns as a formal university? I believe there was a Victorian scheme for an imperial law school in London which didn't come to anything in the end. I don't think it went down very well with the Inns themselves. Didn't fancy the idea. But there's never been a serious attempt. It is quite remarkable that the Inns have managed for 600 years without the formality of incorporation. All their property is vested in trustees. It very nearly happened by accident in 2008 when the two societies in the temple obtained a new charter from the Queen on the anniversary of the grant by James I in 1608 of the freehold. And the 1608 charter was granted to all the benches by name because they had to be trustees. The new charter, which was drafted by Chancery Council, confirmed the 1608 charter to the societies of the Inner and Middle Temple. And I pointed out that that would incorporate them because there's no other way they could take the benefit of the grant. So I drafted a clause which was put into the charter saying that it was not uh, Her Majesty's will and pleasure that the patent should incorporate the society. It wouldn't have mattered if they were, but I don't think it should be done by accident. No. You had joined the Inner Temple by at least 1965 as you were president of the University of London Inner Temple Society, 1965 to 66. When did you start serious research on the Inns? Well, I actually joined in 1963. I still remember going down to my first dinner in Hillary Term. It was a dark evening with snow gently falling, and it was just 
amazing to step out of busy Fleet Street into this completely different world, gaslit lane with the glittering stained glass windows in the hall and nice warm inside. <laughs> and so I was captivated as an impressionable youth. But my first serious research was on the sergeants and I didn't work on the inns until somewhat later. Other than the reference in your 1971 book, the earliest paper I could find was the 1974 article about songs at the inns, which seemed to indicate that you were very keen to record any detail that you could unearth. Uh, well, that was uh, another little jeu d'esprit, really, rather trivial. Nowadays it might well be serious cultural history, or things change, but... I hope no one thinks that I regarded that as serious legal history. What motivated, motivated me to write it was a note written quite a long time earlier in the Law Quarterly Review by Lord Justice McKinnon saying that the song had been lost and he hoped that someday it might be found. I couldn't resist the temptation <laughs> to say it had been. <clears throat> uh, were the inns originally inns or boarding houses where law students lodged? Well, it used to be thought that they began simply as lodging houses and the education came later. Professor Thorne put that forward in a famous lecture he gave in Gray's Inn in the 50s. But I've shown, I think, that they were educational from the start. Indeed, as with the universities, the university was there first before the colleges came along. Do you know when the earliest inn was established? We'll never know exactly because they weren't incorporated, so there's no charter of corporation. But all the evidence converges on 1339-40, when the profession returned en masse from a long exile in York. And there were thousands of them, and they had to find accommodation. And the temple had a to-let sign on it, as it were, because the hospitalers were looking for tenants. And so they moved in there and grazed into was uh, no longer needed by the Lord's Grey. I think Lincoln's Inn went to its present site a bit later. I think it used to be Strangers Inn in Shoe Lane, but that's another story. Professor Baker, would you say that the inns are really the cradle of the common law in contrast to the Oxbridge universities, which were centres of civil or canon law until relatively recently? Yes, I, I agree. The universities contributed nothing to the common law before Blackstone in the 1750s. And even then it was basic teaching aimed at gentlemen, students who might need to know a bit of law to run their estates, preside as magistrates or whatever. And legal scholarship, even after Blackstone, still belonged to the Inns of Court. That's where serious work was done. But the holders of my chair before Maitland didn't write very much of significance. One of them even gave up lecturing because no one seemed interested enough to trek out to Downing to hear him. <laughs> Who was that, Professor Baker? Professor Amos, I think. <laughs> Who'd been immensely successful at UCL, where he started uh, one of the first professors of law. And apparently students flocked to him. He had a very strange method of teaching where he just um, zoomed off at all sorts of tangents, whatever came into his head without any particular plan and told them about cases he'd just been involved in, which students always like. And they presumably learned quite a lot from this, but it didn't seem to work at Cambridge. I think partly because it didn't lead to a degree, which at London it did. And students don't like to go to lectures if they don't lead to a degree. 
<laughs> no exam. <laughs> so apropos references to the inn in your chapter 78 in the Compilation Collected Papers 2013, the title of this piece being The Common Law in 1608, the Civil War destroyed the ancient system of education at the Third University, although by the time of Cook's deposing by Ellesmere in 1616, the die had already been cast, page 1485-6. And you say that this nevertheless laid the foundations of those great constitutional principles which are again under severe strain four centuries later. This was written in 2011, and I wondered what principles you were referring to is now under strain. Well, I actually wrote it in 2008, I think, for a symposium at the time of the Charter, which I was talking about a few moments ago. That's why I was asked to write it. I wouldn't otherwise have picked on that particular year. And I was referring to the treatment of the Constitution by the Blair government, which was beginning to worry me, and it was a theme that I explored in detail in my Maccabean lecture in 2010. That's the most recent legal history I've ever attempted. Right. Okay. Also, in the collected papers, chapter 83, Why the History of English Law Has Not Been Finished, this was your Downing inaugural lecture in 98, you said the learning exercises came to an abrupt end, page 1564. How precisely did the Civil War destroy this flourishing common law university? Well, everyone left. Um, the members all went to join the colours or to defend their homes or, or whatever, so there's nobody left in London and they couldn't keep the learning exercises going. So the inns more or less closed down for four years, 1642 to 46, and there were no lectures during the Cromwellian period at all. They kept very rudimentary moots going because that's the only way you could be called to the bar was to perform a moot. But they didn't have serious exercises. And they were never properly revived because when the restoration came all the people who were due to lecture were, thought they got away with it 18 years earlier and they were very resistant to the idea of having to give lectures in their 40s. It struggled on for a little bit and then collapsed. Partly because the students didn't want it either. I mean they lost an opportunity to rethink legal education. Unfortunately they decided that they'd simply go back to what it had been understandably enough after the disruption. But they went back to the medieval system of legal education as if that was somehow part of the common law that you couldn't ever change. And it meant they didn't lecture on the common law or on things that students might have found interesting. So the students didn't really want to go to these lectures. They didn't go if a nice big dinner was laid on. And I think in the end there was really only one lecture on the occasion of the dinner, which became Grand Day, which we still have without the lecture. And a lot of the you know, lecturers were chosen solely by order of seniority, and nobody interviewed, there was no payment. So it wasn't a matter of interviewing candidates and picking somebody who knew something about the subject. It just went to bloggings because he was called to the bar next after the one who previously did it. And a, a lot of them just didn't do it and were fined. And then at some moment in the 1670s or 80s, the inns decided that these fines were actually far more useful than the lectures. <laughs> it came the tradition not to lecture but to pay the fines. We still elect a reader every year, but they don't read. <laughs> Mr Baker, much of what you have to say about the inns is contained in your 1986 The Legal Profession and the Common Law, Historical Essays, published by Hambledon. 
it was reviewed into earlier by Dr. Lovett. We just answered that one, actually. I, mean, I was just actually wondering... Yes, I think that was the answer that I was going to, to give to that one. Yes, mm. yes. Excellent. Mm. Um, Dr. Lovett mentioned the need for what he calls a, in his review of your legal profession and common law, historical essays, the need for what he calls a biographical register of the thousands of lawyers practicing in late medieval England and that you were the person to lead such an enterprise. Has this ever been one of your ambitions? Well, that is what I tried to do with the men of court from 1440 onwards. I could have made that much longer because there were lots of sources I wanted to go through but didn't. I, I just feared that my thousands of hieroglyphic slips would be thrown away by my executors and I'd better get on and draw a line under it. But it, it couldn't be done like that before 1440 because these actions that I found in the plea rolls, which are the main source, don't seem to exist before 1440. don't know why, but I couldn't find any earlier. I looked at quite a lot of rolls before then. So that's why I started it relatively late. And somebody else could produce something similar, provided it wasn't connected with the Inns of Court, listing attorneys, for instance. But the, the class that we now think of as a barrister class is very difficult to find. It doesn't leave a trace in records. It would be difficult to decide who to include. Referring to your essay, English Law and the Renaissance, this was a chapter in the Legal Profession and Common Law, 1986. You write of the substantial reformation in the Renaissance period, and Dr. Lovett comments, page 156, apropos, and I quote, your continuous insistence on the intellectual life of the law that abstract discussions conducted within the Inns of Court were in part an explanation for legal change as much as political, social and economic factors. Professor Baker, has this contention of yours stood the test of further research in the further intervening 30-odd years? Well, Dr Lovett put it very kindly. I'm sometimes accused of having ignored uh, other factors completely. It, it, I have always found the connection between social change and legal change problematic <clears throat> because social change certainly throws up new legal questions which have to be dealt with and therefore we need to know about them. But I don't see that it necessarily explains the answers that were given and, unless the answers are given by Parliament uh, as a conscious decision um, to change the law because judges have to square their solutions with existing patterns of thought. And judges aren't necessarily interested in modernisation. Sometimes they can be intellectually conservative, except some might say that's their duty. So it isn't as straightforward as I think social historians sometimes assume that the law just somehow, as if obeying the laws of economics, will change in accordance with society. But I'm not absolutely sure about that. Maybe eventually... It has to catch up, but it can sometimes take a very long time. Interesting. Several items picked out by Dr. Cavill in his review of your 2013 collector's papers on English legal history touch on the inns, and I include them here just to consolidate the topic. Dr. Cavill refers to how you appear to relish learning, researching the learning undertaken in the inns of court in their cycles of reading and roots, 
and reconstructing the contents of various manuscripts that recorded these, including those of Sir Edward Cook. He says you scintillated, but he makes the cryptic remark that in those times there'd been a culture that did its best to erase, conflate, or confuse the different activities at the inns, page 738. And I wondered what you think he meant by this. I don't think he was referring to the inns, but rather to confusion in the sources, especially the law reports, which were copied out and edited in such a way that they can be very difficult to unravel. He also made the point that you have detected a 16th century shift in the balance of authority at the inns, away from one based on collective wisdom, to one that exalted judicial decision-making, page 739. I wonder, Professor Baker, if you could summarise this important change for us in the common law. I may have exaggerated it. I mean, to some extent, the, the law was, and, and is, uh, always a kind of professional knowledge which is not necessarily to, to be found in books. But that sort of unwritten understanding was much more important in a world with few books or books which focused on procedural matters rather than underlying principles. For instance, the yearbooks contain very few decisions on points of law. You have to read between the lines to try and work out what the legal assumptions are. Whereas by the end of the 16th century, law reports look much more intelligible to us. We seem to be in a different world in which the law is assumed to be sought in judicial decisions and the judges are willing to say what the law is in their decisions. I began to wonder whether it was correct to assume that the common law was always thought of as case law. And I was intrigued by the large corpus of readings or lectures from the Inns of Court between about 1400 and 1640, which were mostly unpublished and they'd been very little explored. I had the idea that they might be regarded as a source of law in their own right, like a continental doctrine. They may not have been as authoritative as judicial statements, but, but the medieval judicial system wasn't designed to produce legal pronouncements, except in a very roundabout way, whereas the lecturers were trying to make sense of legal principles in a connected way. And um, it seemed to me that a medieval law student would have found it almost impossible to learn the law from reported cases. But I may have gone on about that too much and exaggerated the place of readings, which, which weren't often preserved very coherently. But uh, I do think they can't be ignored by the legal historian. Dr. Cavill finally speculates that what is taught, what was taught in the inns may have reflected students' interests and that the concerns of the majority of members who never became benchers may have been catered for in the same way as found in modern universities. And I wondered if you thought that that was a viable hypothesis. I'm not very sure what he meant, whether that's a speculation that it might have happened, um, or whether he's thinking about anything specific. There was no attempt that I'm aware of to address student needs, whether those of the studious or of the less serious majority, because there was no formal teaching beyond the lectures and moots, which, as I've said, were really stuck in the 14th century. I mean, they were still using 14th century moot cases in the 17th century. Right? They were still, there was an exercise in the inner temple until George III's reign, which you had to pronounce in law French. Those they all thought, well, we had to do it, so make the next generation do it. But there was no tutorial supervision, no attempt to teach people modern things of any kind. 
And it's true that students learnt a lot about life in the inns, but it wasn't exactly encouraged. You know, sometimes their dramatic performance has gotten into trouble. Mr. Baker, that brings us to the next topic, which is concerns Professor Milson. He was an inspirational figure in your early years at UCL, and later you wrote a textbook with him. And I wonder if we could just dwell on a few points, Ray, your relationship with this very influential figure. What, was it Professor Milson who introduced you to working with the plea roles in the yearbooks in the late 60s? No, his influence was intellectual. In those days, it just assumed you could work out things for yourself, like that. And, um, people, including Milson and also Kiralfi, had shown the importance of looking at plea rolls as well as your books to find out information. So it just seemed a natural thing to do. So, apropos legal history as a topic of study, Professor Milson more or less said in his interviews that he didn't care if no one else was interested. He said he enjoyed it and he thought there must be more to it than what emerged from an undergraduate course in legal history. So, as he put it, self-indulgence really, but Trinity had given him a job and he didn't have to worry. Um, in effect, he was paid to teach and research what he called his self-indulgence, and I wondered if his attitude affected you in any way. Well, I, I suppose I share a similar attitude in that I selfishly pursued things that have interested me, and I suspect that's true of most academics. That's one of the few perks of the job, is that you're given a bit of freedom to look into things that interest you. I'm not sure how far that was tongue-in-cheek. I mean, Toby certainly cared very much about what people thought about his work, and I suspect that, like me, he would have been happier if more people had shown an interest in legal history. He was certainly upset that the LSE closed down his chair when he resigned. He wrote a very cogent paper setting out why they should carry on with the chair of legal history, and they just shut it down. That did not please him. Interesting. Um, Professor Wilson also spoke about the annual NYU summer school for law teachers that he was paid for, where he lectured on legal history. And he said, these chaps, and I quote, knew nothing about legal history, but they were quite good at asking difficult questions. So it was a useful experience. And I wondered if this equated with your experience at NYU. Yes, the least knowledgeable students, whoever they are, always ask the hardest questions. I think what's distinctive about the Americans is that partly at law school they're graduates, so they're a bit older, but they are actually more forthcoming about asking questions, whereas our students just tend to be quiet if they want to appear foolish by not knowing the answer. It's quite um, refreshing sometimes to have people ask questions to which they don't know the answers. Often I don't either. Professor Baker, do you find a good deal of interest in, in the United States in common law history? Yes, well, anyway, there was, when I was going there, there was, I often detected an element of surprise that institutions and principles which they believed were American actually a good deal older than they thought. They just weren't taught that. But the interest does seem to be declining, as indeed it is here. It's regarded as too white and too male. Uh, I wonder if you could give an assessment of the long-term importance of Professor Milson's work on Maitland's views. Uh, for example, will he be seen in the future as charting, chartering a new course, or did he make interesting but not fundamental observations? 
Oh, no, they were fundamental. Uh, I mean, first of all, he laid into Maitland's forms of action, which, to be fair, Maitland didn't publish himself. They were just elementary student lectures which got published posthumously. But they become dominant in teaching legal history. And Milson showed how they, how they gave a misleading impression of how the forms of action began and evolved. Um, Maitland's account, as, as Milson put it, presented English legal history as the outcome of some sort of struggle for existence between these forms of action, as if it were a Darwinian process of natural selection. And then he went on to revise, in a very fundamental way, Maitland's account of the early land law. And I suspect that if Maitland had lived, he would have accepted almost all of it. He'd have seen the sense in it. But um, nevertheless, it sparked off a lot of controversy. And Toby was very upset in later life that he thought historians who weren't lawyers hadn't really understood what he was saying and that his work was being ignored. I don't think he was right on either count. I think he is widely respected. Um, and even those who disagree with him can't possibly go back to Maitland's version, which now seems anachronistic and leaves out a very important dimension. Then there was his 1969 paper on, on law and fact in legal development. Now, legal development in the common law, which means increasing sophistication in working out the detailed application of legal principles, could only occur when procedures were developed which required courts to consider more facts than the forms of action allowed them to or required them to. Blindingly obvious when pointed out, but nobody had. Um, and that influenced a lot of my work. So his work was fundamental, yes. I asked Professor Milson a question that he couldn't answer, and I wondered if you had an, an opinion on it, Professor Baker. It was question 271, and I asked him whether... I mentioned that I'd come across a reference to an article by Professor MacDizzy at Loyola University in New Orleans, and he suggested that perhaps some of the institutions of the common law can be traced back to Islamic foundations. I wondered if Professor Milson had come across these notions and whether he had any comments. And he said that, yes, there was a possibility, even if only because of Spain, but, and the Islamic law does have tremendous influence, but um, honestly, he had no idea. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on this. I'd be rather more positive than saying no, but it, it depends what you mean by tracing back. It's always difficult to say where things come from if there's no immediate source. But it, it, the only possible connection I can see would be so tenuous as to be almost meaningless. There probably was a line of academic influence from Beirut to Bologna and then to Oxford and Cambridge, but then... As we said, Oxford and Cambridge didn't have anything to do with the common law anyway. And I, I mean, I've heard it argued that Crusaders perhaps brought back concepts of trusts with them from the Middle East. I just find that rather extraordinary. I don't see any evidence for that at all. That brings us to the final topic, which is the Magna Carta 800 Years. Two books, one chapter, were written in your retirement to coincide with 800 years of its signing. I wondered whether you discovered anything new, if that's the right word, on Magna Carta during your research for these commemorative works. Well, I think I did. Um, not about 1215, because 
great deal was written about that by people who know more about the period. But I, I was interested in the later importance of Magna Carta because if it weren't for what the common lawyers did with Magna Carta in the 16th century, it would now be known only to a few specialists. Whereas I was really struck in 2015 by reading in the newspapers that when Hereford Cathedral sent across its Magna Carta to be displayed in Beijing, the authorities banned it from public display. I thought, how can this 800-year-old document written on the other side of the world in Latin worry uh, people on the other side of the world? It still has the capacity to alarm a totalitarian regime. It doesn't want the people to get wind of it. I thought, there's got to be some explanation for that. No other medieval document has that sort of force. And I suggested to the Selden Society that we ought to do something to commemorate um, Magna Carta, so as usual I got the job of doing it. And I thought, well, one thing that's not been done before is to look at and edit the lectures given in the Inns of Court on Magna Carta in the later Middle Ages, which I did. There was only a selection, but it was still almost a thousand pages, an awful lot of it. And I made four discoveries in the course of doing that, which led on to the book. Firstly, that in all these lectures there was hardly any joined-up constitutional learning. It just wasn't seen as being a great constitutional statute. There was a lot of technical law about dower and so forth, but not about the constitution. Secondly, I found that there was a treatise which originally I had thought was a reading in an inn, but it was a treatise by William Fleetwood of the Middle Temple in the 1550s, which was still very much in the same mould. So we get a right up to the middle of the 16th century and they're still not thinking of Magna Carta as being a great constitutional document or at least not a source of ideas that can be used. There's even the great chapter 29 the readers and Fleetwood more or less say has no effect because there are no remedies laid down and it doesn't mean very much anyway when you analyse it. And then thirdly I discovered having read ahead a bit beyond the readings that there was a sudden surge of interest in the 1580s, which seemed to be connected with so-called Puritan lawyer MPs. I also found that Cook had written a treatise on chapter 29 in 1604 and linked it with habeas corpus. It was long before, well, before he even became a judge, he wrote this while he was a law officer to King James I. I thought these are all really rather remarkable facts that nobody had noticed before and some sort of explanation needs to be found. And, uh, at the same time, I was being asked to give lectures all over the place, as we all were. And the first one I was asked to give was in the temple in 2014 on Magna Carta and religious liberty. And I said, there was absolutely nothing in Magna Carta about religious liberty. <laughs> it's quite the contrary. Chapter 1, in effect, confirmed the Church's power to repress people and stop them believing things. But anyway, they said, well, we still want you to do, it. do anything you like, but talk about um, the Constitution and Magna Carta. Anyway, in the course of doing that, I came to the conclusion that actually religion did play a part because of the reaction against the very illiberal regime before the break with Rome in which people were being tortured to death for not believing in transubstantiation and so forth. Um, and that sort of linked with these Puritan lawyers' concerns about the High Commission, which they thought was going back to the bad old days. And so religion also came to, to feature in the story. And then 
I try to draw it all together with more detail in the book. Fascinating, Professor Baker. And that brings us to the third section of this conversation, which is specific comments on some of your major books. Could we, starting with your first book, 1971, An Introduction to English Legal History, look in some detail at comments on the various editions to see if this book's evolution over 30 years can teach us anything about your views and how you learned the art of keeping the book alive and relevant. Also, how you address points raised in the reviews, even if this was not necessarily consciously. Its publication trajectory covered 31 years, from 1971 to 2002, which was most of your publishing career, from your UCL lectureship to midway through your tenure of the Downing Chair. It was obviously researched and written while you were a lecturer at UCL, so under the topic of some general observations, you mentioned in a previous interview, Professor Baker, that Butterworth suggested that you write this book, and I wondered if you could elaborate on the circumstances of this. Well, I don't exactly know what motivated them. I think Tony Thomas at UCL had suggested to Butterworth that they approach me because they told him, I suspect reading between the lines, they told him that um, they'd engaged Toby Milson to write a book and it wasn't going to be a basic textbook as they had rather hoped, that something as, as I would see as being much more important, and indeed it was. And so they wanted someone to do the idiot guide and with me, they went to the other extreme and got a, a youngster who didn't know anything <laughs> write a very simple 200-page book. You said in the preface it, it was based on your UCL lecture notes. Uh, what sort of students or what type of students were doing legal history at UCL in the late 60s? Well, I must have been referring there to the elementary English legal system lectures in the first year, which we also had in Cambridge. I think everywhere at that time had a course called English Legal system. And it was thought then that law students ought to know something about legal history. And long since given that up, but that, that was then the belief. And it wasn't much fun teaching people who didn't want to know, actually, so I'm not sure that I regret its disappearance. So it was a very elementary course. The later editions were much larger and more specialised, and I wondered why you changed the format. Well, I never really changed the format, I don't think. I just added things because the book became larger as I tried to make it clearer or, or less inexact. And, and every clarification means you put in another sentence and it gets longer. And I'm afraid each edition became 50% longer than the one before. But it, it wasn't a change of format. I never really altered the basic structure because it wasn't meant to be a result of research. It was. It has always been just a guide for the beginner before they read something more serious. In the preface to the second edition, you state that one of the faults of the first was that it was written with, I quote, a clarity given only to those who have not come to fully appreciate the extent of their own ignorance. This gives it an illusionary strength. I thought that was harsh self-criticism, and I wondered whether this isn't perhaps true of most accounts of ongoing research where the end is not in sight. Well, I suppose so, but it, it wasn't as I just said, it meant as a monograph putting forward 
some new individual approach to the subject in the way that Milson's historical foundations was. It had very modest aims indeed. And then I, as time went on, thought that perhaps they're just a little bit too modest or <laughs> a bit more explanation was needed and that's why it got longer. Several reviews came out um, and one in particular was very commending by Professor Simpson in the CLJ of 1972. He said it was excellent, clearly written, lively and interesting. These must have been very satisfying comments from such a highly regarded scholar then at Lincoln College in Oxford. Yes, Brian was very kind indeed and um, an inspiration to me in the early days. He said it was particularly good on your special topics, procedure and sources of the common law. Yes, well, I'm sure that they were my special topics, but that was very kind of him. <laughs> His comments were proactive and he suggested a new format uh, and that future books should include a section on how to find out what the law was at certain periods, and secondly, a discussion on general issues, for example, do legal doctrines reflect current social conditions? And I wondered whether this was something you felt uh, that you should address in later editions. Well, I didn't really, because I, I, mean, I absolutely take his point, and it would be very useful to have a book designed to guide people who are intending to do research in legal history. But that really wasn't what this book was meant to do, it was just a introductory guide at that time for first-year law students, but it's, it's actually used by people taking legal history courses now, I think, for lack of an alternative. Um, so and I didn't think that could be done in the same book. It would have to be a different sort of book, which I didn't write to myself, nor is anybody else, I'm afraid. As to the second, I've already mentioned my difficulty about law and society. And there was already a good book by Alan Harding on the social history of law, so I felt it wasn't necessary to try to cover that territory. Another of the reviewers, Professor Hand, uh, writing in The Irish Jurist, liked your book very much. He said it filled a glaring gap. Um, so your aim must have been fulfilled, Professor Baker, in writing the book. Yes, well, that was very pleasing too. Mm. He said on page 185 that there was a certain whiggishness about your approach, and I wondered what he meant by that. Well, I'm not sure what in particular he was <laughs> referring to there. Perhaps I am a Whig, not in the original sense. Um, but I've never assumed that outcomes happened just because they happened. I've always been interested in the losing arguments. For instance, my early article on Slaves' case was very much about the losing arguments. Professor William McGovern, at the time the University of California, did a review for the American Journal of Legal History, and commenting from a US academic's viewpoint, he said it was of limited usefulness as an introduction to further study, uh, and he said its best role was as a brief outline. Was this, do you think, Professor Baker, because the requirements in the United States were so different to the UK? Well, I don't read that as a criticism. I think that's absolutely accurate. It was meant as a brief outline, and it wasn't meant as an introduction to the further study of legal history. And I don't think there were many courses in the United States that went much further than that. I used it for my courses there, and I know it's been used by others. But what Bill McGovern also said was that students should read the original materials instead, 
that was the real context of his remark, and yeah. I agree entirely with that, and indeed dealt with it by producing the source book with Toby Milsom. He, he said that the discussion was clear, but he found your style so concise as to be obscure. Was this because you covered so much in such a compact te text? Well, it was indeed an exercise in praise. Of course, style does vary. Its effect on other people varies with the reader. I've looked again at the review, and I must admit I don't know how I could have made clearer the particular sentence he criticises without repeating much of what is set out elsewhere in the book. Maybe it should have had a cross-reference or two, but I always try to put in lots of cross-references. Both Professors Hand and McGovern commented favourably on your use of previously unpublished evidence, even in a student text. Was this a feature to which you aspired even at this early stage of your writing career? Makes a work unique. And I know that your later works followed this pattern. It wasn't a conscious policy. I just used the best evidence I know, whether it's printed or manuscript. Uh, much more is now in print than was the case in the 1970s. If I came upon something that seemed to illuminate what I was writing about, I put it in, though conscious that it's not very fair on the students because they're not likely to go to the British Library and look it up. Uh, again, that's another reason for having a source book. Coming to your second edition of this important book, this was reviewed again by Professor McGovern. Uh, at this point he was a visiting professor at Minnesota, and he was very praising. He said that it was the best book currently available, useful even to specialists. And I imagine this must have been very gratifying. Yes, that was very kind of him. And he obviously liked it being longer. <laughs> he said, however, it seemed to me a criticism that it concentrated too much on English law, so that in the United States the book has flaws, although the common law has evolved in parallel in many areas. For example, others it hasn't, taught liability without fault, use of juries and legal education, so that the book distorts the picture from a US perspective. He also felt that judges in the United States have not been cowed by not embroiling themselves in politics. Uh, he says it must be in the type of judges, not a constant sweeping change in the law that you claim. And I wondered whether you consciously omit the US viewpoint. Well, it was, as, as Bill said, true to its title. It was an introduction to English legal history. So it's a little, little bit unfair to say it's a flaw that it doesn't <laughs> deal with American legal history. I was certainly conscious of possible readership in the United States, and um, quite a few copies have been sold there. But I, I wasn't equipped, and I'm not equipped, to write a history of American law. And indeed, at the time when I wrote the book, I don't think there was a, an accessible history of American law is quite a difficult thing to do with lots of different states. It becomes very complicated. And if I had tried to do it, the book would have been twice the length and it would have been very much less useful in England, which is yeah. the main object. It was liked very much by the Vice President of the Selden Society, uh, Dr. Frederick Wiener. Uh, he said there were timely warnings for the United States and points up the dangers of changing law in the United States. Mistakes made in the UK, and he mentions the abolition of civil law juries, fusion of law and equity, no more assizes, and the abolition of admiralty law. Do you think this is valid, Professor Baker? Do you think these changes were for the worse? 
Well, Fritz Wiener obviously did. My intention was to draw attention to the effects of the changes rather than to pass judgment on them. He may have drawn that conclusion from what I'd written. One of the reviewers, Professor Duncans, he's now a professor, associate professor at Brisbane, complained that your book was too rooted in Oxbridge and Inns of Court. Do you think that was fair? I'm not sure what he meant about Oxbridge, whether he's referring to Doctors' Commons, but you could only be a member of Doctors' Commons if you had a doctorate from Oxford or Cambridge. No doubt wrongly, but that was the historical fact. Um, as to the Inns of Court, spot on. Uh, the story is rooted in the Inns as far as I'm concerned. I don't know why that was a source of complaint. <laughs> <clears throat> what did you think of his point that uh, your, your views were right-wing? I remember being puzzled at the time. I had no idea what prompted yeah. that. Um, he complains of your silence on various topics, that the law was remote and out of ordinary people's reach. He says these produced a particular view of the social world then and now. I wondered whether you had any comments, Professor Baker. Well, I wasn't writing about ordinary people's views, which are extremely difficult to get at anyway. And as I said, there's a good book by Alan Harding on the social history of law, which digs up whatever one can dig up from, from that aspect. But I was writing the kind of book which law schools used, treating the history of law as an intellectual system. And so in that sense, it is somewhat internalist necessarily. Just uh, That's the kind of book I was writing. Maybe one could have written a different book on the law being out of touch, but that's not really the, <laughs> the subject. Even he commented on your including new search results as being very positive. Well, that's kind of him. Did, did, he, did his comments have any influence on the next edition? No, you can't please everyone. No. Which brings us to the third edition, published in 1990, and Professor von Karnigam at Ghent University in the Journal of Legal History was very praising. He said that by now it had become a classic textbook. Um, I imagine this was an assessment that you welcomed. Yes, that was much nicer, and I particularly appreciate it since it came from such a distinguished scholar mm. and from the continent. Mm. He commented, as others had done, on what made your book exceptional the use of direct sources rather than secondary literature. And he said that particularly difficult, it's particularly difficult when one is writing what you still called an elementary introduction, although he said this description must be taken with a large pinch of salt. Well, I think it's actually elementary compared with what the sort of thing we're now doing in the Oxford history, for instance, which is to go into a bit more detail. It, it is meant as a summary for those who don't know anything. And as far as the manuscripts are concerned, as I said, I just use those which seem most apposite, whether they're published or not. Professor Finkarnigan said that the book did lack attention to the European background. Uh, he said you gave it less attention than, for instance, Plucknet, page 161. Uh, he also comments that on the ecclesiastical courts, that were essentially just apropos English ecclesiastical courts. I wondered whether you think this was a fair comment. Yes, it's absolutely true. But I wasn't writing about the European dimension, and I don't think it would have helped the story that much. There are very interesting contrasts with the continent, particularly when similar 
developments seem to be occurring, in, but in different procedural frameworks on both sides of the channel. And I try to explore that in my essays on English law and the Renaissance. But direct influences are very hard to detect. And I thought in an elementary textbook there would be a diversion. Yes. He said the three main qualities that he liked in your third edition were abundant information, apparently materials not easily available elsewhere, and a feeling for what he called the brief and telling phrase, and finally a good nose for the essential elements of a problem. This must have been pleasing, Professor Baker. Of course, one of the best reviews I ever had. <laughs> for your fourth edition, I could find no reviews. Uh, this was published in 2002. In the preface, you said that writs and plaintiffs and Latin maxims had been done away with as trappings of the past. I wondered what caused this. You imply it was related to Lord Wolfe's comments that you quote on page six and seven of your collected papers. Do you have any...? Well, on the whole, historians should keep quiet about the present. It certainly isn't their role to complain about change. But I think abolishing words which everyone understands, like plaintiff, is pointless and actually confusing. It is patronising to suppose that lay people didn't understand plaintiffs. They understood claimants who were people associated with social security claims. And lawyers have to know what plaintiffs were because they've got to read cases going back to the days when there were plaintiffs. I think the most absurd example of this patronising attitude was the decision of the parliamentary draftsman a few years ago to stop using the words shall and may on the grounds that ordinary people can't understand them. And the result is utter confusion in the statute book. The statute introducing the Supreme Court says there is a Supreme Court. Well, that's a false recital, because there wasn't one until Parliament said there should be one. So it just makes no sense at all. It made statutes much more difficult to understand. Also, you said that city law firms were taking on history graduates <clears throat> in preference to law graduates because the latter's education was too narrow. What did you mean, Professor Baker, and has this trend continued? Well, that's what I was told by solicitors when I was director of studies. And legal education is now actively discouraged by some eminent judges, such as Lord Sumption who himself read history, but he's hardly a typical example <laughs> to hold up. We're the only country in the world, I think, which doesn't require lawyers to have a law degree. But the problem is, and I accept it, that's what I was referring to, is that law schools are becoming more and more... Con they're trying to concentrate on more practical subjects, because that's what students want. And they think that's what the profession wants, and it isn't because they say, we will teach you all the company and commercial law you need to know. What we want are people who've got a, a good general background and know the techniques, but can also think sideways sometimes and uh, outside the box. And if the remedy for that is to go and read history rather than law, that seems a very serious indictment of what we're doing in the law faculty. Yes. You said there'd been no substantial rewriting between the third and the fourth editions, just heavy tinkering. What had this amounted to? Just heavy tinkering. I can't quite remember exactly what I changed, but went through it with a wet pen. 
Previously, Professor Baker, there'd been a new edition every decade. Now, nothing for 15 years. No, well, that's too long. It's time for a new one. And I think OUP will let me have another go, provided I don't change it too much. It's already quite long. That's wonderful news. Um, Professor Baker, before we move to the next book, uh, I must just ask you whether you're happy to continue. This book was your 1986 publication with Professor Milsom, Sources of English Legal History, Private Law to 1750, a collaborative effort. And by this stage you were a reader at Cambridge and Professor Milsom was within four years of retiring from his chair. And I wondered what the circumstances were that persuaded you both to collaborate on this. We both had the same idea simultaneously, and extraordinary though it seems, I think we both had approached Butterworth with a view to doing it, and they said, can't you do it together? There was a precursor in the form of Five five Foot's History and Sources of the Common Law, which we had been using in in teaching, but it didn't include any land law, and it didn't take account of research since 1949, so we both felt there was a need for a new one. You said in the preface, this is a book for all levels, undergrads to professors, and I quote, to sink deep enough into past discussions to lose the misleading perspectives of hindsight. I wonder whether you can elaborate. Those were Milsom's words. Um, And I I think he means that to understand legal developments, one shouldn't just look at the outcomes, but at the arguments, especially the losing arguments and also the contemporary framework of discussion, because they very seldom argued in our terms, and we can be misled if we go back looking for a modern kind of discussion. We've got to get into the sources. Right. In the preface, page five, uh, the problems of what the medieval conditions of daily life were like was just as important to sort out as what the law was. do you feel that the book went about addressing this in the text? Milsom's words again. No, we didn't address this directly because we didn't include any commentary. I think he meant that this would be part of the usefulness of the book. The legal sources have much to tell us about the conditions of daily life, provided they're properly understood. Coming then to some of the reviews, and in 1987 in the CLJ, a review by Professor van Koenigen, where he said... He picked up on this last point, and he said that the authors abstained from helping their readers in any way to understand the meaning of their texts or to interpret their significance. Well, it was partly because of the space. Fifoot had added commentary but left out the land law, and if you tried to do both, it would probably end up as two volumes. But the real answer is that the commentary was in Milsom's Historical Foundations, and to a much lesser extent in my textbook. So to have combined all that in one work would have not only produced a massive work, but would have been unnecessary duplication. Uh, Professor von Koenigen also called for a glossary of obscure legal terms, and he said that this would have made the book more accessible. Again, was this lack of space? No, I think, that, again, the reason is that that's really the function of a textbook. Glossaries can be very misleading if words are taken out of context. You, you can't just translate technical terms, especially from the past, 
into ordinary words without a lot of explanation, context. And many terms change their meaning over the period covered by the book anyway. So you end up writing a little treatise on legal history to explain each term. He was very praising of the labour the editors had bestowed upon it, page 339, and the care with which the text had been selected and translated. He called it solid and voluminous. So were you happy overall with the book and the, the reception? Yes, it was very well received by the reviewers. It hasn't been used quite as much as one might have hoped. Another reviewer was Professor Karelfi at UCL, and he, he says it was a companion to your two textbooks. Um, and this is because said some of the material in the current book is not self-explanatory. Is this how you... This, I think you've probably answered this question already, Professor Baker, that you, this is how you planned it originally. Yes, I'm a, more of a supplement to Milsom, I suppose. But yes, indeed. He, he made the point that the duplication of some cases is very useful because it would appeal to US teachers where it could be used as a case book. Was this planned with the United States market in mind? Not particularly. I, I think we saw it being used the same way on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm not sure it has been. He was very complimentary and he used terms such as great pains and very detailed treatment. And overall, as you said, Professor Baker, you must have felt very pleased with the reviews for this book. Yes, indeed. Which came out again 24 years later, in 2010, no longer with Butterworth, but with OUP. And I wondered whether you could tell us why you decided to bring out a second edition. Oh, we just found various shortcomings over the years, things that have been left out and mistakes that needed correcting material that needed adding, so it's quite a bit longer. <laughs> that is always the case when you try to improve something, it gets longer. It's almost impossible to improve something by making it shorter. I wish I could. Well, you were on your own this time because Professor Milson had retired and you stated that you had the following aims to illustrate legal thinking, arguments of principle, lines of reasoning from case to case, innovations in forms of action and statutory engagement with the common law. Did this approach differ from the first edition? It wasn't meant to, no. Rather less elegant than Milson's words in the preface to the first edition, and that was my effort. Uh, I noticed that you didn't act on some of the criticisms of the first edition. Um, perhaps you felt that the readers hadn't in fact found them to be problems. I haven't had much feedback from readers, but the real answers were those I gave earlier, that we thought that those matters belong in other books, in textbooks, rather than in this one. Professor Sirks, in the Tate for Rechts, in 1982, said that the first edition had become indispensable, and he believed that the new edition would do the same. Do you feel it has been successful, Professor Baker? Never sold very many, though they were kind enough to produce a second edition. I didn't ever produced the intended companion volume on public law. It was subtitled Private Law to 1750 with the object that one day there would be a public law volume. But that was partly because there wasn't any accepted type of course for it to accompany. I'd never taught a course on the history of public law, so I wasn't altogether sure what to put into it. But it was partly because Butterworth never came back and said, but can we have the public law volume? I think they were 
disappointed by the sales of the first one. So with your continuing editing and translation of manuscripts in the digital age, would it be feasible to bring out electronic supplements to a book such as this when you find new old cases? Well, it would be. Um, one isn't likely to find that many leading cases that aren't know about, but one certainly finds telling cases from time to time, and one could put more and more online. If I start doing that, no stopping, of course, because you think everything might be interesting, and you will put all the law report. As I said earlier, it would be nice to have everything online yes. in due course. Professor Baker, happy to continue. Yes. Your 2003 Oxford History of the Laws of England, Volume 6, 1483-1558, published by OUP, is a monumental volume which has generated several reviews and it must represent one of the high points of your publishing career. A series of 12 volumes from 597 to AD to 1914, your volume being volume 6, covered the last of the Yorkists and most of the Tudors, but it was first published. Um, the series was devised by yourself and Professors Milson and Brian Simpson in 1986, but you were the general editor. And I wonder if you can explain how this all came about. Yes, I've looked it up. It was exactly 30 years ago, in early 1987. It was Brian Simpson's idea. He approached Oxford University Press. And we met with Toby Milson, I think at the Randolph Hotel, to discuss it. And we all thought it was a good idea. But the other two didn't want to have to do any of it. So I was pushed into the general editorship. I found a minute of 1987 saying that Toby would be a co-editor, but insisted that I would be the senior of the co-editors, which was rather ludicrous. <laughs> and he helped me draw up an outline scheme, but already by May 1987 he thought better of it, and I was appointed the sole general editor. And then the next year, in 1988, I signed the contract for my volume, so you can see how long that took to produce. And by 1993, we had five signed up. And uh, it takes time to find authors. Yes. As editor, did you try to devise a similar format for each volume? Yes, that's always been the intention. Of course, authors have their own ideas, and each period has its own peculiarities. But uh, we try to make it as uniform as we can. Was it an onerous task, riding shotgun on this large group of 15 different authors? Yes, it's like trying to get blood out of a stone. <laughs> After 30 years, we're still not halfway. Um, one author tragically died after 18 years of work, just about to retire and write it, leaving nothing to show for it. And two others withdrew for health reasons. So it's, I don't even know which will be the next one. Whenever you see an author, they say, oh, yes, we're working very hard on it, but... You don't really know how close they are to finishing. I'm sure I shan't live to see it all finished, which is rather sad. I had hoped I might. What determined the chronological extent of your remit, 1483 to 1558? Well, I've always been interested in that dark age of legal history, as I called it. We decided to divide by reigns for want of any better system, although very arbitrary. And although one usually starts in September 1485, I, I wanted to take in Richard III as well because of his legislation that fitted best into my part. It was well reviewed 
extremely well-reviewed. Professor David Yale in the Legal History Journal gave it high praise, and he emphasised, page 99, that even this term is largely based on his own researches. Translations of plea rolls, reports, readings at the ends, the bulk of bringing all this together must have been done while you were a Darwin professor. Did it consume most of the first half of your time in this chair? It started long before that because it goes back to the Spellman's reports and the York Prize. Um, just ongoing interest in the period. Dr Yale made the point that readings at the inns by the 1500s were no longer just on statutes and that readers could choose their own topics, but that they were still unable to speak on the common law itself, which you point out on page 528. Why, do you, why were these various restrictions in place at different times? Well, they were still on statutes, but um, they gave up the old cycle, of, if indeed there was one, of lecturing on the 13th century statutes. And um, they could choose a more interesting recent one, like the Statute of Uses. But the reason why they could only give lectures on statutes was because of the ingrained medieval idea that a lecture is reading out and commenting on a text. That's what lectura means in Latin. That's what reading means in English, I suppose. And the only text that they could use was the statute book. Bracton wouldn't do, because that was an idiosyncratic textbook, which was already out of date when the ends came into being. So they just chose the statutes. And as far as we can tell, the original scheme was to start with chapter one of Magna Carta, and every reader took over where the previous one left off until you got to the end of the 13th century, and then you zoom back to Magna Carta. Mm. At some point, that was given up. Uh, David Yale commented, page 99, on what you said, on page 529, that you concluded that Tudor criminal law was made coherent and sophisticated by the intellectual discussions at the inns. And this harks back to the earlier question, Ray Dr. Lovett, his query about the inns. This was 17 years later, so you still held that view. Um, was this an example of the influence of the Inns during its golden age, which coincides with the time frame of this Oxford book? Yeah, well, the criminal law is only a small part of the book, and I certainly hadn't changed my views on that, and still haven't. The, the book as a whole is not really connected with my work on the inns. As I say, it began with my curiosity about the, what seemed to me to be a dark age of legal history, um, following the medieval period on which so many people had concentrated before. I was interested to see David Yale's comment on page 100 that you concluded that even a vindictive king, such as Henry VIII, followed legal due process. Well, it often seems to suit tyrants to do that, doesn't it? Hitler was much the same, apart from the very worst things that he tried to keep quiet. He generally tried to get legal sanction to do what he wanted to do. Another review... So, so we now have this phrase, Henry VIII clause, is in the newspapers today, and oddly enough, that's the one thing Henry didn't get away with. He wanted Parliament to give him power to change law by proclamation, and the House of Commons put its foot down and said, absolutely not. <laughs> Another reviewer, Professor Dermot McCulloch, in the Ecclesiastical Law Journal, said that you look at canon law issues primarily, or he looks at canon law issues primarily, and he raises 
several points related to the upheavals that affected the church in Tudor time and about which you wrote. And he comments on the surprisingly small overall effect on ecclesiastical law that Henry's Reformation had, as you said, page 252, the medieval learning which they applied remained substantially in place. And I wondered why you think this was. Well, what Henry did was obviously to remove the authority of the Pope over the English Church. He wasn't interested in a reformation of religion. He was very conservative. And certainly there was an intention to overhaul the canon law and review it, to remove what were thought to be Roman incursions, which had um, were undesirable. And so there was provision in the 1534 statute for a commission of half canon lawyers and half common lawyers to review the ecclesiastical law as it applied in England and um, produce a code editing out those bits that seemed inappropriate. And until they produced the result, the statute said that the old canon law should continue as before, so long as it wasn't directly contrary to English statute law. And um, since the Commission never did do its work, that statute is still in force. <laughs> so the Church of England is still in theory governed by medieval canon law, which the Roman Church repealed long ago. Though in fact most of it has been since altered by statute, of course. Professor McCulloch says that it was surprising that in the Statute of Rules 1540, jurisdictional rules was left in short church courts. Well, that's only partly true, because it's true that probate remained with the church courts, because that had always been their concern. But the interpretation of the Statute of 1540 and its effects on the land law were solely for the royal courts. The church courts didn't have jurisdiction over that. And that was all new because before 1540, land couldn't be left by will, except by customs in towns. And I should perhaps have said in answering the previous question that most of the canon law in, in practice that people came across was about marriage and divorce and probate. It wasn't about matters that we now consider to be ecclesiastical. Right. And there was no great pressure to change that. You know, everything went on much as before. Another reviewer, Professor McNoll at Cardiff, said that, well, he was very praising, he said that you, you produced beautifully turned discussions, uh, but he did use the word laconic, as had David Yale to describe your style. Uh, did you find it difficult to write nearly a thousand pages under the constraints of space, apropos of period? when the law developed at what McNeil called breakneck speed. Yes, indeed I did. And it may look to the observer as if it's very long-winded, but I left out an awful lot that I wanted to put in. And indeed, one looks at every sentence to think whether it can be shortened, and then it becomes laconic. Yeah. It's a pretty fat volume as it is. And I, one could have left topics out, I suppose. That's the only other way of dealing with it. But yeah. they're meant to be encyclopedic, so I wanted to try to deal with most of the things that people are likely to look up in it. Yes. Mm -hmm. He also said that you were partisan in your handling of the trial of Sir Thomas More, seeming to lay the blame on Parliament for the bad law rather than the judges, whom he obviously disagrees with you in being fair under contemporary standards. 
don't you think perhaps he is guilty himself of judging the situation through modern eyes rather than from a Tudor perspective? And that's something that you've argued against in your collected papers book. Yeah, I'm always getting into trouble over Sir Thomas More, who I don't think deserves the title of saint, frankly, with all due respect to <laughs> the Holy Father who gave him that title. I, I really don't see how the judges could have struck down the statute, however obnoxious it might have seemed. And no one is very sure what Moore's legal argument was, or, or could have been. It, it's said that he might have relied on Chapter 1 of Magna Carta, but that can be read however you wanted to. It could be read as freeing the church from Rome. And, so. and as to the evidence, as to whether it was a fair trial in that sense, whether Richard Rich was perjured is a matter for the jury, and, and the selection of the jury, which might have been packed, was a matter for the sheriff, and there wasn't really a, a tradition of judicial intervention in those matters. They thought facts are not for us, and they, they took refuge in the fact, as indeed Moore himself said in one of his writings, the judges don't want to be involved in trying facts. They find it easier to say that's for the jury, and they just preside over the trial to make sure that the, the rules are observed, which they were. Another of the reviewers was Professor Brian Levac, who was at the Department of History at Texas Austin, and he described in the Law and History Review your work as a remarkable achievement, a work of vast erudition, all based on exhaustive research, and he called it a monument to your unrivalled contribution to legal history, page 707. Do you think of this book as a monument to your life's work, Professor Baker? I suppose so. I'm not sure that's the only one. He also suggests that your characterisation of many changes in the law that took place over this period were less revolutionary than perhaps you suggested. For example, land law, real actions and procedure. He said they evolved. Do you think he misrepresented your portrayal of these changes as more paradigmatic than you had intended? Perhaps. I never meant to suggest they were sudden, just that the law in 1600 looks remarkably different from that in 1500, much closer to the present in many ways than anything in the medieval period. And that's what had intrigued me about it, just why all these changes occurred in the 16th century. And I became a bit interested in whether the same sorts of things were happening on the continent. And I thought I could see that similar things were happening on the continent and it also occurred to me this is a period of intellectual changes in other f spheres as well, religion and uh, science, people beginning to think more rationally. And so I thought maybe there's a connection with humanism. I don't sure quite how you deal with the zeitgeist frankly, but um, I don't like isms very much. But I did try to write a little bit about whether these um, contemporary currents were affecting what happened at the time. And if I suggested that was revolutionary, I probably didn't mean it in the sense of blood on the streets, but rather <laughs> something that happened fairly profoundly, but over a, a longish period of time. So you did actually question your linking in the introductory sentence of the book the new spirit of humanist rationalism and rationalistic spirit with changes in English and European culture. 
because he says that the historians have, have, have abandoned the claim that the Renaissance was in any way rationalistic. Yeah, but I use the word Renaissance because Maitland used it in a very famous lecture that Maitland gave called English Law and the Renaissance, uh, the Reed Lecture. And I was trying to show that he was mistaken in some of his assumptions. So I gave a lecture with the same title at Oxford. And I used the title again, I think, in the book without giving a great deal of thought to what it might mean. I mean, maybe humanism would have been better, but I don't like isms anyway. And uh, as I say, I was just aware that there was something going on and um, putting a label to it doesn't explain what it is or why it happened. It, but it had been a topic of interest before as a result of Maitland. That's really the explanation for that. So, just as a general comment um, about this work, given your continued research into Tudor legal history, do you think you would ever be tempted to update this book, perhaps by issuing supplements on particular sections electronically? I don't suppose I'll have time. Well, I certainly could in theory, but I don't see myself doing it somehow. Professor Baker, that brings us to the final book uh, which I've selected, your 2013 Collected Papers on English Legal History. And I've found this to be an absolute gold mine of your papers, while the introductory chapter was enlightening in the extreme in summing up your publish, publishing career to date. Uh, so, some general comments on the very readable introductory chapter on understanding the common law. There are two gems that help one make sense of medieval applications of the common law. One, nothing can be understood unless one realises the dominance of form and procedure and the limitations these pose on the questions that could be asked. And two, the need to switch one's mind to the same thought processes as the lawyers of the period in which we are working. And I wondered how these notions came to you fairly early on in your career. Oh, with Pierre Nelson. came from Nelson. The language of the common law, Latin law, French and English, if some of the concepts in the common law as they were originally expressed in Latin are difficult to transpose into English, have there not been subtle changes to such concepts since the discontinuation in the use of Latin, following Lord Wolfe's exhortations? Well, I'm not sure because I no longer teach law, but there wasn't a great deal of English law still expressed in Latin even before Lord Wolfe's reforms. It's just the doing away with phrases like res ipsa loquitur and certiorari uh, and so forth, which cause confusion because you have to resort to circumlocution to achieve the same results and people knew what those words were instantly whereas you translate them into ordinary words and you've got to make clear that you're using the ordinary words in a special sense I don't quite see the point of that yeah. but whether it's had any real effect I don't know The common law was taught at the Inns of Court, the third university um, why was it not taught at Oxbridge? I think they just took the view that what they taught was universal knowledge and the common law was just a kind of local custom beneath their notice. They didn't bother with it. Right. You should be able to go from Bologna straight to Cambridge and read the same subject and know what they're talking about and argue in the same language, Latin. Right. 
you follow this by saying, don't just plug keywords into Google, but read cases which seem to be of no conceivable interest. What role does modern technology have in your research in legal history? Well, it's become absolutely vital. It's very difficult to remember those early days with a manual typewriter and having to use pencils in libraries without digital cameras and so forth. Though it's become vital in four ways, I think. Firstly, word processing, and that's where I started. I got my machine in 1987 primarily because I thought it was magic to have footnotes put in automatically. Until then, you would renumber in ink, and, and then if you retyped them, of course, you could retype the numbers, but then you almost certainly want to put something in later, and it becomes footnote 3a asterisk or something. And in those days, the printers were marvellous at converting all that into numbers when they set up the type. But they wouldn't know how to do it now in India. So just having word processing is a massive transformation of one's working practices. And then, of course, there's the internet. There are so many published materials now online, rare books, recent books, articles, and so on. Earlier in my career, I bought a lot of 17th century books, but they're all online now. And I think it's still easier to read the originals, but now we can access every single book, whether we own a copy or not. And then thirdly, we can use the internet to search for information, quotations, persons, or relevant literature. And you can just find things that you could never have dreamed of finding in a month of Sundays in the old days. Too much information, perhaps, to some extent. And those who haven't been brought up the old way must find it hard to evaluate all the material that comes up at the mere click of a mouse. But uh, tremendously useful. And it's very difficult now to remember the days before we had that. And it's getting more useful every day. And then fourthly, the digital camera. And um, thanks to the pressure from genealogists, local record offices began to allow people to use cameras and the public record office soon followed. And eventually, last year, the British Library caved in. So now, everywhere that I use, anyway, you can take in... Well, it used to be a camera, it's now an iPhone. My iPhone is much better than my camera. It sees much better than I do. So in the really dark conditions of the British Library, I can take a photograph, my iPhone can read it, and then when I get home, I can put it on the screen and I can read it. Absolutely wonderful. It's never dreamed of those things in the past. One thinks how much more work one could have done sensibly if one had been able to take all these shortcuts. So I envy the next generation. You coined the term legal archaeologist, an, an analogy of digging away at layers of data, constructing a chronology of laws, evolution. Is this a throwback, do you think, for your schoolboy hankering for being an archaeologist? Maybe it is. Professor Baker, did you, as an aside, ever master Greek, which I remember you telling me your headmaster no. said no. you that? Not necessarily. <clears throat> Editing manuscripts and records, you said, I've spent much of my career editing. Editing has been at the core of what I do. Every legal historian should edit something. You return to this theme in several of the papers. Is this philosophy something that you've always taught your students? No, because it's not something you do at the beginning of your career because it doesn't get you noticed. No one really credits editing as being 
particularly worthwhile. I don't think anyone who hasn't done it realises how exacting it is and what it contributes to scholarship. So you need to have tenure before you start doing things like that. But you'd learn so much from editing, that's why I think people should do it. Page 9 and page 12, the law of French was mentioned several times, especially in the fascinating chapter 29 on the three languages of the common law. Is there an analogue in the law of French so recently used in the Channel Islands? Well, it's similar. I don't think it's the same dialect. Obviously, it developed in different ways and for different purposes. The, uh, the language experts don't regard the law of French as being Norman law, now, uh, Norman French anyway nowadays. It's a different sort of French. And it wasn't adopted in the law courts because of the Norman conquest, but simply because it was a generally understood language at the time in the 13th century. And I suspect if a Norman came to Westminster Hall, they might not have understood it. <laughs> <laughs> Apropos the plea rolls um, and searching them, how do you go about that? Um, do you have any, is there some sort of an index system? No, there isn't. And if you know the name of the case you're looking for, which you often don't, and if it's a King's Bench case, then there are some docket rolls kept by the clerks which you can go through quite quickly and find the membrane number. But that doesn't work for anonymous cases, which most of them are. And it doesn't work for common pleas cases, which is where most of the cases went. So if you're editing yearbooks or law reports, you have to scan miles and miles of plea rolls looking for a case of which you may not know the name or the exact date or exactly how the point arose. And you just have to use your imagination in guessing what it would look like on the roll. And that part of the editor's work is much more difficult than reading the French. Um, the, the notebooks that you made from the plea rolls, you say you wrote papers and books based on them, uh, but since you would not have been sure of what you were about to discover as you ploughed through the rolls, this must have thrown up some very strange things. Well, you do notice things of interest, and I sometimes jot them down, sometimes I don't, because I think, well, I'll never use that, so I'll let someone else discover it. <laughs> I remember one day I was working in the old public record office, and a friend of mine, Janet Lowengard, suddenly said with delight that she, looking at Elizabethan plea roll, had just found an action on a contract for building a round theatre in London earlier than the Globe. And she passed that on. I'm not sure that she wrote it up herself or passed it on to someone. Of course, that became an article. Great interest to theatre historians. And no way they would have found it if they'd gone looking through plea rolls, because you'd have to read several miles of abbreviated Latin before you came across it without even knowing that it would be there anyway. Yes. And there's a lot of material like that, which is not even law-related, which there's no way of getting at. Mm. No. <laughs> They'll never be indexed, too much of them. Apropos listing and cataloguing, you've made lists of words, people, manuscript holdings of libraries, catalogues of what institutes hold, and so on. Why has there been so little cataloguing in the past? Is it just too time-consuming? I don't know why I do it, really. It's just a kind of obsession of making lists, I suppose. But it's unrewarding, and it doesn't earn you a job or promotion. It's just that I've so often found that I wanted a list of something for my own use, and so I produced one, and then you try and polish it up a bit and make it available for others to use. 
suspect there were reviews of your collected works and Dr. Cavill at Pembroke College described this compilation as a dazzling range of esoteric learning which defies generalization. Even the footnotes are alluring and witty. High praise, he sums up the collection saying that legal history has an autonomous character in contrast to the progressivism that is prevalent in most branches of history. Do you think that this could account for the necessity of your having to call over the years for recruits to step forward and take on editorial tasks to continue Maitlings and your labours? Do you think that, in other words, progressivism is more trendy and more attractive a mode in which researchers prefer to operate these days? I'm not even very sure what progressivism is. <laughs> but uh, in history departments, they're never going to do the kind of legal history that I've done, and they don't regard it as significant, really. They think it's all cobbledygook. <laughs> um, as far as law faculties are concerned, it's purely economic, because there are no jobs in legal history. So you have to get an appointment as a law teacher and then do legal history once you're safely established. <clears throat> <clears throat> Dr. Cavill raises your giving short shrift to foreign interlopers such as human rights, page 740, which in your last chapter, chapter 78, volume 3, you emphasise has in fact been a feature of English law long before the European project got into its stride. Would you say to pessimists that after Brexit, human rights will be in just as safe hands under English law as they are now? I don't see why not. Uh, I'm not sure what short shrift I gave human rights unless it's just a name. In, in my Magna Carta book I pointed out that two-thirds of the provisions of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 was English law by 1616. Um, and there's no plan at present to withdraw from the Human Rights Convention anyway, even if the public think otherwise. Uh, even if we do, our judges would pay due attention to decisions from the continent, I'm sure. Dr. Cavill, in conclusion, says that overall you were instinctively opposed to the possibility that legal history can be explained by social, economic and intellectual changes, making, in your view, the law enclosed within itself. Is he being unfair to your views? No, but I've already tried to explain how I have difficulty with the idea that social changes can explain legal changes beyond explaining how the questions came up. Sometimes the legal sources are the only evidence for the social changes anyway, so you can go around in circles. But where appropriate, I've always tried to put legal changes in the context of social change. But it's difficult to explain in those terms why, say, the doctrine of consideration appeared in the mid-16th century, if it did, or why the law of privity or quasi-contract developed when it did. You can certainly show sometimes dissatisfaction with certain parts of the law, but it often continues for centuries before anything was changed. And that may be because the dissatisfaction wasn't universal, and there were difficulties there. I think it's partly a difference between the way historians with and without legal background approach legal history. For the lawyer, law is an intellectual system with its own history. And historians think that's anathema, that um, the law is an observable phenomenon and how the results come about is just 
technical gibberish written in funny French, which, which obscures what was really happening. So we just see things differently. And I think they're both valid forms of history. There's just something of a gulf between us very often. And it's partly because if you haven't read law and learnt to think like a lawyer, you just don't see the legal system as being something that, or legal thinking as being something which can have its own history. Professor Baker, to conclude, drawing a line at any point in the discussion of your scholarly works would seem premature. So rich is its compass, there's always another intellectual vista beyond whichever horizon one has just scaled. But it has to be done, and we have to stop somewhere. So perhaps a good place to end, where we can take stock, is with the last paper in your 2013 Collected Papers compilation, in which you take a general look at your subject and ask, why should undergraduates study legal history? This was a lecture given at the University of Galway in 2006, and you said, page 1577, that some law firms preferred students not to have specialised courses but be broadly based. I know we've touched on this briefly, uh, but some judges would dissuade intending barristers from reading law at university. Do you think that this is an indictment of how universities teach? Well, yes, I've already um, said that, I think it is. Yeah. Yes. As a result of the last point, you concluded that in an ideal teaching regime, law would only be a postgraduate subject in UK universities, and you say that this is now unthinkable in the UK, presumably because of the vested interest in putting on undergraduate courses. But you say it is the way that law is taught in the United States. This allows us to assess whether your conclusion has merit, at least in comparison with the United States. Do you have any comments? Well, I don't think it's vested interest so much as economics. American law students run up debts on a scale which would probably still be unacceptable here in order to earn salaries which are very high so they can probably pay them off fairly soon. We are heading in that direction here, of course, since student loans were introduced. But whether we could easily go further is doubtful. And one of the, I'm not sure that it would be desirable anyway because one of the problems about paying for education is that the institutions come under great pressure to provide what the customers think will enable them to earn their fortunes. And they're often wrong, as, as Lord Sumption and others rightly point out. That isn't what um, employers want. They want people to have been educated as widely as possible. And you see in the US law schools seem to be becoming narrower and narrower um, in the sorts of things that interest them. Interesting. One of the reasons you give for teaching legal history is that without it, Parliament cannot commit legislative acts that can inadvertently, or even by design, undo centuries of parliamentary democracy. And you give the example of the then Legislative and Regulatory Reform Bill that was going through Parliament, page 1572. But unless most MPs are forced to have law degrees, isn't this ignorance of the law, let alone legal history, inevitable and going to result in mistakes? just being a consequence of the modern democratic process? Fortunately, MPs don't make the law, they just vote as they're instructed. The, the problem is the lack of belief in or, or understanding of constitutional principles by those in power and the sidelining of legal expertise, which I increasingly detect because they see it as an obstruction to effective government.
And this disregard for constitutionalism is, is well illustrated by the attempted abolition and then the subsequent decline in authority of the Lord Chancellor. It was obvious that was going to happen when you took away the requirement that the office should be held by a lawyer and treated it as an office to be held by relatively junior government ministers who would have to do what they were told. Uh, the old-style Lord Chancellorship was an institution which was very difficult to justify in abstract theory, but it worked very well because the holders were expected to have a certain stature which enabled them to stand up to the government and uphold the rule of law. And that, I suppose, is why Blair ended it. Now, it wasn't ignorance of legal history in the long-term sense, but an unwillingness to learn from the more recent past or, or think into the future. You stress that there's currently an extraordinary contrast between leaders bred on Magna Carta who will fight in defence of their liberties and those members of Parliament whom you've just mentioned, for example, Mr Blair, uh, who do not care of how much is at stake. Well, I was comparing the 17th century with the present when people fought a war over sort of issues that people don't seem to care about anymore. Except when it comes to Brexit, perhaps. <laughs> well, apropos of the Brexit debate, what do you foresee and wish for in the future for both teaching practice and the future development of law in England and Wales after Brexit? I'm so old that I was teaching law before we entered the EEC, and so I know that it needn't make that much difference to how we do things, as opposed to the content, which obviously will need adjustment. And I suspect students will still need to know about EU law for at least a decade and probably longer while it's all being sorted out. With Brexit, Professor Baker, will you mourn or rejoice in what is likely to be a legal and constitutional watershed of our times? I don't suppose I'll live long enough to find out. And where do you think in the sweep of legal history Brexit will be viewed in a few hundred years' time? A major event or just another footnote? I think it will be seen as a major event, perhaps in European as much as in British history. But the period of our membership has been comparatively short in historical terms, so it may be that those who work on its history in the distant future may be seen as narrow specialists working on the early 21st century. Interesting question for me is whether to mention it in my fifth edition. Well, Professor Baker, all that remains is for me to thank you most sincerely for a truly outstanding account. I'm extremely grateful to you for participating. I can only thank you again. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. <laughs>